It's 70 degrees in Caracas today, Friday, January 4th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. Growing uncertainty in Venezuela over President Hugo Chavez's health, officials now say he's battling a severe lung infection. And later, undocumented Mexicans living in Mexico. Parents there don't always report new births. They don't understand the importance of having a birth certificate until they have to get the children to school. Plus, a Mexican priest who may have uncovered a synagogue once visited by Jesus. I felt something about this place and this project. Very strange and very difficult to describe. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com. And by Focus Features, with the new film Promised Land, starring Matt Damon and John Krasinski, from the director of Goodwill Hunting, now playing everywhere. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. In six days, President Hugo Chavez of Venezuela is supposed to be sworn in for his fourth term in office. It's unlikely that he'll make it back to Caracas by then. Chavez has been in Cuba ever since undergoing emergency cancer surgery on December 11th. Officials in Venezuela have been tight-lipped all along, but today the country's information minister admitted that Chavez is suffering from a respiratory deficiency caused by a severe lung infection. Reporter Phil Gunson is in Caracas. He notes that Venezuela's constitution is ambiguous about what should happen if Chavez isn't sworn in on January 10th. A reasonable reading of the constitution suggests that if Chavez is unable to attend the swearing-in ceremony, then the parliament has to decide really whether this is a temporary or a permanent absence. If he's temporarily absent, then in theory, the chairman of parliament should stand in for him whilst he recovers. If he's permanently absent, the chairman of parliament still stands in, but we move immediately within 30 days to a presidential election. Right. So tell us more about who is the head of parliament. Well, the current head of parliament is a man called Diosdado Cabello. He's a former army lieutenant, took part in Chavez's coup attempt in 1992, regarded as, in some respects, a hardliner, although not so much on the ideological front. He's a very bellicose, belligerent man, unlike the other main contender for the leadership, if you like, who is Nicolas Maduro, the vice president and foreign minister, who is the man that uh, before Christmas Chavez named as his successor, should he be unable to resume the presidency. There's a small complication here as well, which is that tomorrow the new parliamentary session begins and the, the first business on the parliamentary agenda is to elect the parliamentary leadership for the next session. It's possible, therefore, though I think it's unlikely, that Diosdado Cabello, the man I mentioned, might lose that job. But I think it's more than likely that he will stay there, among other things, because the Chavista movement needs to demonstrate that it's unified, that it's united. So if Hugo Chavez doesn't show up for one reason or another, how much time does the government then have to hold an election and get someone installed in the presidency who's not just a placeholder? Well, if Chavez is deemed to be temporarily absent, he can, in theory, be absent for a total of 180 days. After 90 days, there has to be a 
a decision taken by Parliament as to whether to renew it or not. But this could, in theory, go on for months if, if Chavez survives. On the other hand, of course, if he's deemed to be permanently absent, permanently incapacitated or, or dead, clearly, then there has to be an election within 30 days. In those circumstances, the government is better placed. They've just come from a presidential election back in October, which Chavez won comfortably by 10 or 11 percentage points. They have a, a man in Nicolas Maduro who, who's the clear candidate, and it's Chavez's dying wish, if you like, that Maduro should be the next president. The opposition, on the other hand, they come from that defeat, from a defeat in December as well in regional elections, and they're obviously not as well prepared as the government in the sense that they, like the rest of us, don't really know what's going on with Chavez's health, whereas the government does. Phil, what is the mood in Caracas right now with the ailing president in, in Cuba? Well, it's obviously the main topic of conversation, and, and I think the best way to sum it up is probably nervousness, uncertainty, a lot of deep concern, obviously, on the part of his supporters in particular. Chavez is a very exceptional politician. He has a very deep emotional bond with millions of Venezuelans who feel his absence and his illness as if it was that of a family member. So even beyond the ranks of the Chavista movement. People are very concerned because we don't really know what's going to happen. Almost any scenario is possible. We've been speaking with freelance journalist Phil Gunson in Caracas about what next in the protocol of succession for the ailing president of Venezuela, Hugo Chavez. Phil, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you. From south of U.S. borders come millions of undocumented immigrants. Many live in a shadow existence in the United States. But it may come as a surprise that if you go back to Mexico, it's got its own shadow population. These are Mexicans who don't have formal birth certificates and are technically invisible in their own country. They can't vote, get a diploma, or practice a profession. But one man is helping Mexico's undocumented attain their citizens' rights and dignity. Reporter Monica Ortiz Uribe has a story. Octavio Martinez is easily recognized in his hometown. He lives in Santa Maria Huatulco, near the Emerald Bays of Mexico's southern Pacific coast in the state of Oaxaca. Tourism here means work, but some of the poorest job seekers won't be hired in places like hotels and restaurants because they are undocumented. Martinez is known as the man who brings people back from oblivion. On a recent afternoon, he rides in a battered old minivan with no air conditioning. Martinez can't drive himself because he's paralyzed from the waist down. He gets around on a wheelchair and with help from a generous network of friends, from taxi drivers to attorneys. A young woman in a torn tank top with a toddler at her side stops him from the sidewalk. She asks, you're the one who does the civil registries, right? Her husband needs to get his paperwork in order. She asks how much it costs, and they agree to meet over the weekend. Mexico's National Registry estimates that between 7 to 9 million Mexicans lack a proper birth certificate. Here, babies aren't automatically registered at birth. Mexican parents must take their newborns to the local civil registry office. Those who don't typically live in Mexico's rural or indigenous regions or are extremely poor. Karen Mercado heads the B Foundation, a nonprofit based in Mexico City dedicated to eradicating this problem. A lot of these people, they don't understand the importance of having a birth certificate until they have to 
get the children to school. By then, the children are five, six years old, and they have to pay fees. People who live on less than $5 a day, they tell us, look, a birth certificate is a luxury to us. The people who lack registration are often those who tend to immigrate to the U.S. for better opportunities. When that happens, their situation becomes even more complex. They are not only invisible in the country of origin, but here in the United States, they become doubly invisible, doubly undocumented. They have no country. These immigrants are ineligible for Mexican consulate benefits, including grant money and identification cards that allow them to get a federal tax ID number. If Congress ever enacts immigration reform, those doubly undocumented won't be eligible to participate. That's one reason why, back in Mexico, Octavio Martinez works so hard. Oaxaca, one of Mexico's poorest states, is where many unregistered Mexicans live. For one month every year, the state government runs a program that lets people of any age document themselves for free. But it's not enough. Martinez helps hundreds of people year-round. The city gives him a small stipend for his work. On a recent evening, Martinez visits a woman who lives on the outskirts of town off a rugged dirt road. Her nine-year-old boy is unregistered. At school, the teacher lets him sit in class, but without proof of identity, he won't get credit or a diploma. We now know that registering your child is important, she says. Without a birth certificate, it's like they don't exist. Undocumented Mexicans can live a life with little promise. Not only are they deprived of an education and a formal job, they can't open a bank account, can't get legally married, or register their own children. Even worse, they can be targeted by organized crime, either as a victim or a recruit. Being undocumented makes it extremely difficult for police to track them down. The problem of under-registration isn't exclusive to rural regions. You'll find invisible citizens even in the urban jungles of Mexico City. Like Brigida Mata Luna, she spent half her life selling dry chili and garlic off a noisy sidewalk. She thinks she's around 80 years old. She doesn't know for sure because she's never celebrated her own birthday. Only recently did a church group help her get a birth certificate. Now, she might receive government welfare. There's value in that, but being registered also means something more. Dignity. When Mataluna dies, she won't end up in a nameless grave. I'm glad to have my paper, she says. Before, I lived like an animal. Now, I live like an actual person. For The World, I'm Monica Ortiz Uribe. Monica's story was produced in collaboration with reporter Lilian Lopez and Round Earth Media. Huge crowds of Palestinians turned out for a rally in the Gaza Strip today. They celebrated the 48th anniversary of the founding of the Fatah movement. What's significant about the rally is that it happened at all. Gaza is ruled by Hamas. The Islamic militant group and the secular Fatah faction are bitter rivals. The world's Middle East correspondent Matthew Bell has more from Jerusalem. Today's event was the culmination of several days of celebrations, and it was unprecedented. Since Hamas took control of the Gaza Strip in a violent coup in 2007, this was the first time the territory's Islamist rulers allowed Fatah supporters to hold a mass rally. 
Gaza resident Walid Medan said this was a great day for all Palestinians. He said today is the start of the Palestinian revolution and the beginning of Palestinian freedom. This was the first bullet fired, he said, the start of the resistance led by the late Yasser Arafat, the founder of Fatah. Top party officials from the West Bank, the separate Palestinian territory ruled by Fatah, came to Gaza to join the celebration of tens of thousands. Not too long ago, these same officials were afraid to set foot in Gaza, but today they joined the crowds waving the party's yellow banner and they watched a recorded speech by Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. Abbas said Palestinians should work together in unity. There is no better choice, he said, to reach national goals and achieve victory. Mukhaimer Abusada teaches political science at Al-Azhar University in Gaza. He says today's Fatah rally sent a clear message to Hamas and to Israel from Mahmoud Abbas, who's known as Abu Mazen. Still, Abu Mazen is politically relevant, and he is representative of uh, the Palestinians as a leader of Fatah, a leader of the Palestine Liberation Organization. And Hamas hasn't been able to uh, wipe out Fatah or hasn't been able to uh, cancel Fatah from the streets of Gaza. Today's rally does not mean that Palestinian reconciliation is at hand, Abu Sada adds, but he says the atmosphere between the two political enemies might be starting to change. Sabri Saidam is an advisor to Mahmoud Abbas and a Fatah leader in the West Bank. He says it's high time for Palestinians to end the political divide, even if that means angering Israel and the U.S. by bringing in militant groups. Having a political party that opposes your opinion uh, into your scene within your arena is much better than uh, excluding that party and turning it into a militant party that has no option but to destroy your politics, uh, including Hamas, including Islamic Jihad, will be a constructive step in the right direction. Further steps, Saddam says, will be the reconstruction of the Gaza Strip and holding Palestinian elections for the first time since 2006. As a reminder of the challenges ahead, Today's rally in Gaza ended early after reports of fights breaking out between rival groups within Fatah. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. This is PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to health care through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report online at medtronicfoundation.org. And by Focus Features with the new film Promised Land, starring Matt Damon and John Krasinski from the director of Goodwill Hunting, now playing everywhere. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Imagine starting an archaeological dig and finding relics that would lead you to reassess the history of the life of Jesus. That's what happened to a Mexican priest who wanted to build a church and a hotel for pilgrims in Israel on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. When workers were clearing the ground, ruins thought to date back to the time of Jesus emerged. The ruins are also significant to Jews since one of the buildings is said to be a rare first-century synagogue. And archaeologists are now asking whether Jesus might have visited the building. Iris Makler reports from the ancient town of Magdala in the Galilee. Workers are building a winter shelter to protect the ruins at Magdala. In the time of Jesus, this was a thriving fishing village. It was home to Mary Magdalene. 
she was Mary of Magdala, and was located in the small area along the Sea of Galilee, where the Bible says Jesus lived and ministered and performed most of his miracles. One of the most amazing discoveries here is a synagogue, one of only seven ever found from the time of Jesus. This stone is really unique. We never ever excavated something like this. Dina Gorni is one of two architects from the Israeli Antiquities Authority who excavated the site. It took me three days to believe to what I'm seeing, that we are standing on a synagogue from the time that Bet HaMikdash, the uh, temple in Jerusalem, was working. All this was a mere 20 inches beneath the topsoil. Incredibly, no other towns had been built over it in the centuries since, and no one had disturbed it. It was waiting, like Pompeii, to be discovered. I felt something about this place and this project. Very strange and very difficult to describe. Father Juan Maria Solana is director of Jerusalem's Pontifical Institute. After conducting Mass, he explains that his dream when he arrived in Jerusalem seven years ago was to build a church and hotel for pilgrims in the Galilee. After four years gathering donations, Father Solana had enough to buy the land, and the dig began. The New Testament does not specify that Jesus ministered in Magdala, but Father Solana says that finding this synagogue means that what we thought we knew will have to be re-examined. The Jewish viewpoint is very clear. First century synagogue, very beautiful, decorated with piece of art. Never ever found an altar as the one we found. Never ever. From the Christian viewpoint, of course, we cannot doubt that Jesus was there sometime. But there is another point. The first Christian communities used to gather in the synagogues. They were Jewish. So it's clear that the first generation of Christians used to gather there. It's the oldest church on earth. The two archaeologists working on the site, Arfan Najjar and Dina Gorni, one Muslim and the other Jewish, give cautious support to this theory. They point out that the synagogue was located on the outskirts of Magdala and was built for a congregation of around 120, not the thousands who lived there, for people, in other words, who marked themselves off from the rest of Jewish Magdala. They point out that the synagogue was located on the outskirts of Magdala and it was built for a congregation of around 120, not the thousands who lived there, for people, in other words, who marked themselves off from the rest of Jewish Magdala. Tramping around the site on a sunny winter's afternoon, the Sea of Galilee shimmering only a few feet away, Gorni is still in awe of what they've found here and its importance for both Christians and Jews. I think this is the point of the, the beginning. And you can read it on the sources, you can hear about it, but to see it really, actually, real evidence, that's here. That's what you see here. The story about Jesus and Maria Magdalena, the synagogue, the stone. It is so important to both religious, I think, to the world. 2,000 years, it was lying here, waiting for 
us for this generation for this year to to see it to to come and touch it and to pray here again when this dig is finished father Solana intends to preserve the ruins in an open-air museum he says finding what may be the site of Jesus first ministry could be a real blessing for his church and hotel being built nearby for the world I'm Iris Mackla in Magdala in the Galilee The parishioners left behind a complete mosaic in the Magdala Synagogue some 2,000 years ago. You can see it at theworld.org. Now on to a more mundane matter in Israel. Parliamentary elections are slated to take place later this month. And as the world's Aaron Schachter reports, Israeli politicians, especially those on the struggling left, are desperate to get out the vote. It's no surprise, really, to find that young people are politically apathetic in Israel or anywhere else. But this year, the Israeli left is especially concerned. Centrist and left-leaning parties have been decimated over the past decade by internal squabbling and a public that turned to right-wing parties on security issues. So the left is hoping to energize the people who took to the streets for Occupy Tel Aviv-like demonstrations. Tens of thousands marched in 2011 to protest skyrocketing housing costs. Many set up tent cities in downtown Tel Aviv. Itzik Shmuley was a protest leader and is now candidate for the Labour Party. He says the anger expressed back in 2011 is still around, and it will get people to the polls on January 22nd. Shmuley says today people in Israel think differently, and act differently too. Suddenly they believe in their ability to bring about change. He says the challenge now is to turn that energy into votes for labor. But the Israeli government isn't especially optimistic that young people, left, right or center, will show up at the polls. So the Israeli Election Committee has trotted out this campaign. The video features the Israeli version of an uber-hipster couple sitting at a Tel Aviv cafe. The man and woman complain that only when coming back from Berlin, currently a very trendy destination for Israelis, do you understand how much of a third, fourth, or even fifth world country Israel is. Suddenly, the complaining police show up and give the couple a ticket. The slogan, not voting, don't complain. Polls suggest that the Israeli voters who are likely to show up for elections in two weeks will keep Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party in power. And they suggest that far-right, not left-leaning parties, are gaining ground. For The World, I'm Aaron Schachter. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead on The World, Indian women continue to express their outrage at the harassment and sexual violence they endure. This woman recounts how, on a crowded bus, men often pretend to fall on her. They get a pleasure and they don't think about the women. Women don't get a pleasure, they get a dirty feeling when you fall on them. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report online at Medtronic.com. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Now that the issue of sexual violence has begun to be publicly discussed in India, it's as if the floodgates of opinion have burst open. Today, a right-wing politician named Mohan Bhagwat blames sexual violence on Western influences. Bhagwat was commenting on protests sparked by the brutal gang rape of a 23-year-old medical student on a bus in New Delhi last month. She died later from her injuries. Protesters across the country have been demanding better laws, better enforcement, and better services to make India safer for women. New Delhi in particular has developed a reputation for being India's rape capital. Many women there say they're regularly harassed, or worse, on public buses, including this protester who spoke to the BBC. I'm Roma, I'm a teacher by profession and I commute by bus every day and it's always crowded in the morning because due to the office timings men like feel falling on you, they'll fall if it's crowded, they have a plus point because then you can't blame them because they have a reason it's crowded, the driver's taken a break so we fall on you, they get a pleasure and they don't think about the women they, women don't get a pleasure, they get a dirty feeling when you fall on them, sometimes like we feel like, like giving back to them but you never know, you think there's only one man there but he might be having a group there Another woman, a student named Minakshi, talked about being groped by a group of men on a bus. I was just looking for a seat and I had the six boys who, were, who had surrounded me from four side, I mean, from my backside and they were like, you know, sort of, you know, trying their best to touch me and have their own pleasure. And there was this man who said, uh, Madam, you sit on my seat. And this guy, he said, you know, why don't you look after your job instead of trying to help someone when you are... He was an old man and then suddenly they got in this scuffle and they beat this old man really badly and this man was bleeding through his nose and all the women and men in the bus was like, this girl is a bitch because she created so much of trouble with this old man. I was blamed for uh, nothing all I did. I mean, I didn't ask for any help. I didn't, I didn't know this old man, neither I knew all the four boys who were sort of trying to trouble me. Some people say they see the protests and outrage over the gang rape as a sign that things are going to change in India, but Meenakshi isn't so sure. See, the protesters, the people who have come out, is, constitute just almost 1% of the total population of Delhi. I, right in the morning, I read this in newspaper that a three-year-old girl child was molested by a school guard. Now, the guards are doing this. This girl was stripped naked in the park. And I read it and I broke in tears thinking that this could be anybody around me. So do you think things are changing? That was a protester named Meenakshi speaking to the BBC. Violence and sexual aggression have been part and parcel of Indian cinema for decades. Here's a tame example, a musical number from the 1991 Bollywood hit called Hum. Here, the hero teases the heroine, pressing her for a kiss. She coyly says no at first, but she eventually gives in to his advances. You would find uh, the heroines accepting the teasing and actually enjoying it. That's Uma Vangal. She's a professor at L.V. Prasad Film Academy, and she's on the line from Chennai, India. Now, Dr. Vangal, one male critic I read recently wrote in an editorial that what's truly terrible is the manner in which film heroes have for decades pestered, stalked, and forced their unwanted attentions on heroines in a thousand films, yet ended up getting the girl. In other words, no ultimately means yes if you just keep the pressure on. Is that something that you would agree with? 
I would completely agree as a teacher of cinema and popular culture in India very often I I conduct many sessions on this kind of portrayal of the man woman relationship where aggression in the male is seen as an attractive quality by the woman they have this very ridiculous term in India called eve teasing especially in urban India where men think it's fun to tease girls in the bus on the road in you know wherever they can get away with it this is portrayed very very often by the heroes of any cinema any film any language basically hindi tamil any language you will see the heroes would start out teasing the woman in public sometimes even get a little aggressive with her you know commenting on her clothing on the way she walks and how she's uh, you know encouraging male attention and quite often in the end ending up with that same woman who can't help falling in love with this man if it weren't for th- this part of the narrative of pushiness getting the girl in film would things be different in india you know i i don't think one can solely lay this blame at the door of indian cinema in the sense that we all know that cinema is only a reflection and a slight exaggeration of what's happening out there in reality it's more of a social mindset and a certain set of uh, values and beliefs and you know the kind of uh, condoning of such acts of sexual violence or aggression It sounds very chicken and egg, very cyclical, like you don't know really uh, what comes first, the social kind of context or the film that then feeds the social context further. That's something we've always been dealing with, but I think one uh, one thing I could say for sure would be that the past 10 years, let's say a decade of Indian cinema is reflecting largely this changed um gender relationships in the sense that with the coming in of the it boom and more and more women getting into the workforce there's a lot of um you know men out there feeling very threatened by this new indian woman who is very liberated very aggressive goes out to get what she wants and actually manages to overtake them in the social spheres mm. so i think that is being manifested by films and by the behavior of men off screen. What about just the pure objectification of women in a lot of these films? I mean, do you see a lot of that coming out of Bollywood or any other parts of the country? We see women uh first of all inviting the male gaze by titillating them with their heaving bosoms and, you know, simulating the sexual act as closely as possible in their song and dance routines. Uh, many Bollywood stars interestingly have have come out to show their solidarity for what happened 3 weeks ago uh in Delhi the, this uh, terrible incident and now the girl is dead from your vantage point in India have you seen some f- self reflection among Bollywood stars and do you think this is sincere I really am very very skeptical about all these Bollywood stars or any other film industry person coming out I I live in this uh city where the film industry has films that actually justify rape there's a there's an entire scene in a film where the hero rapes the heroine and justifies it saying she questioned my masculinity and how else do i prove it mm-hmm. except to rape her you know and the audience is whistling and saying wow great what a man so uh, you know i personally don't believe anyone from the film industry will really do something about this state of affairs dr uma vangale professor of film at lv prasad film academy in chennai thank you very much for your thoughts on this thank you so much marco Some of the stories we're hearing about sexual violence in India are almost incomprehensible. Others sound like they could be happening anywhere, including here in the US. The news from India has raised many questions for us here in the Boston newsroom. We've been having conversations about gender and violence around the globe. 
And we're curious to know what conversations you've been having on the subject. So we put this question to you. Where in the world have you felt most or least safe as a woman? And for our male audience, tell us what you've seen and what you're thinking about the topic. Come to theworld.org slash worldgender and make your voice heard or tweet with the hashtag worldgender. Something out of the ordinary happened yesterday on a soccer field in Italy. One of that country's top teams, AC Milan, walked off the field, abandoning a game it was playing after one of its players was targeted by racist chants from some of the fans in the stands. The incident caught the attention of soccer fans the world over, including the world's William Troop. Uh, tell us what exactly happened, William. Well, uh, basically, AC Milan was playing a friendly game uh, against a very, much lower-ranked team in Italy called Propatria. And reportedly, throughout the 25 minutes that the game had gone on, uh, the fans in the stands for the Propatria team were targeting AC Milan's black players with a, a monkey chants and other racist abuse. And one of these players, uh, Kevin Prince Boateng, a very well-known player in, in Italy and in Europe who is from Ghana, picked up the ball in the middle of the game, picked up the ball with his hands, and kicked it into the stands, obviously angry. And then he proceeded to walk off the field, and his whole team followed him. And AC Milan abandoned the game and never came back. Wow, so that's pretty impressive. Have you ever heard of anything like that before, where that solidarity just kind of ends the game? We've had enough of this racist abuse, we're out of here. No, there, there's been a lot of talk in Europe, not just in Italy, but in Europe as a whole, that uh, black players saying they've had enough of this kind of uh, racist insults being thrown at them from the stands. They've threatened to do this, to walk off the field and not play. But they've never actually done it as a whole team, and certainly not a top team like AC Milan, which is you know well-known around the world. And was it kind of like a few fans who were chanting this stuff, or was it like the entire arena? What was the deal? Well, reportedly, it, w it was a very small number, about 20 fans. There were, you know, a couple thousand in the stands, not that many. But, uh, but really, a very small number of fans were the ones uh, chanting at the, at the players. So uh, the reaction from the other fans in the stadium was notable, too, that uh, once uh, the players started walking off, all the other fans in this little stadium in northern Italy started booing the fans that insulted the mm. players in the first place. And, you know, that was notable because uh, basically most soccer fans in, in Italy and in other countries don't want to be associated with this kind of behavior. Right, although one wonders what would have happened if they started booing earlier. That game might not have ended so abruptly. Yeah, and that's really the, the, the question here. Uh, when this racist abuse is happening in the stands, you know, there are people who are sitting around these fans who are insulting players. And uh, where is the reaction then? So, William, I've heard about uh, racist epithets being tossed about on the field between players, between players and officials. But, but how common is this problem in the stands? Well, in Europe and perhaps some other parts of the world, uh, I'm more familiar with Europe, it's very common, actually. Uh, in, in Italy, it's a particular problem where, uh, you know, in the top leagues in Italy, there's a lot of players from around the world. Many of them are black. And it's quite common, actually, that uh, fans from the opposing team will use these monkey chants to, to target them. You know, it's unprecedented and, and has to be said a brave move by uh, Boateng and uh, his fellow players to walk off the field. But do you think it's going to change anything? Well, uh, there's been an, a lot of support for, for these players doing this uh, from all around uh, the soccer world. In particular, the owner of AC Milan, who is none other than the former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi, uh, came out in support of Boateng and mm -hmm. his teammates and said, if this ever happens again, uh, AC Milan will walk off the pitch again. And that's, that's another thing that's never happened before, an owner basically backing up his players like that. 
Um, the question is, though, this was a very insignificant game. It was a friendly game against a team that nobody, you know, hardly anybody has heard of. Will a top team like AC Milan do this when there's a lot on the line, when right. it's, you know, a, a top match where, you know, millions of people are watching on TV? I think if that were to happen, things could change a lot more. The world's William Troop, always great to speak with you about the beautiful game. Thanks for coming in. You're welcome, Marker. See for yourself, we have video of the AC Milan walkout plus Twitter reaction at theworld.org. It's a good day for a wedding in China, a white wedding, any kind of wedding. In fact, this Shanghai wedding registrar says business is booming. She says 258 couples have already registered today, and they're expecting the number to double. On a normal day, they get about 30 to 40 requests. They're so busy that some couples have had to double up on their vows. Those are vows in harmony. So why the big demand? The world's Beijing correspondent Mary Kay Magsad is here in Boston. So Mary Kay, tell us what's going on here. Okay, so you know how when you're sending text messages on your phone, there are abbreviations like LOL, LOL means laugh out loud. Right. In Chinese, there are abbreviations in numbers. Um, so, for instance, there's the one uh, 5201314, which sounds like a phone number, right? But it actually, if you say it, it sounds like which means I will love you forever. So if you take the five off, which is wa or I, you're left with... Two zero one three one four, which in the way that the Chinese do dates is 2013, one for January, four for the date. So everyone thought, great, let's get married today. <laughs> and do they follow our calendar in China? Yeah, they follow our calendar. They also have their own Lunar New Year celebration, which this year will be in February. Mm. Um, but generally, they do follow the international calendar. So has this ever happened before? Not quite this, but there are other dates that people like to celebrate. For instance, on uh, December 12, 2012, there was a spike in marriages, and the same thing happened on November 11, 2011. Um, on 11-11, that's considered Singles Day in China so because there are four ones, right? Mm. So one person started this, and now it's become this great a day to get together with other singles and spend money on yourself. And it actually helps the economy out because there's a little spike in spending on that day. So why do these dates seem to have so much significance in China? I know Chinese love numbers. I mean, I remember there were some cell phone numbers that were going for really high value on eBay a while ago. People were spending lots of money on them. So what, what's going on there? Yeah, just a real respect for and interest in numerology. Mm. So for instance, the number eight is considered to be lucky because ba sounds like how you say fortune in Chinese. And ba so, is eight in, in and Mandarin. Ba is eight. So, of course, the Beijing Olympics started on 8-8-2008. The number four, se, in Chinese, can also mean death. So it's interesting that in this case, even though it was January 4th, you'd think that might be unlucky for a marriage, that they just kind of decided to finesse it and say, okay, well, we're not really talking about the sound for death. We're talking about this part of the phrase that means forever. Optimus, basically. Yeah. What, what about you, Mary Kay? Do you have any good kind of personal numerology stories? Like, does your birth date mean anything important or significant in China? Well, I was born in August, so there's there's an eight right there. That's at least it's something great going start. for me. I don't think there's anything else that I can fall back on, really. <laughs> the world's Mary Kay Magsad. Thanks so much. Thank you, Marco. Still, a le still ahead, who left the crabs in the bathtub and the tanning bed in the bedroom on PRI?
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Your clues for today's GeoQuiz are... A stamp album worth a quarter of a million pounds, a bucket of live crabs, a Persian chinchilla kitten, which was due to be entered into a cat show, and a micro pig that goes by the name of Percy. All those items have something in common, and we'll get to that in a moment. First, the stamp collection. It was found in a town in Wales, a town famous, in Wales at least, for its rugby team, its local brewery, and for its tin plate production. There's so much tin plating done there that the town is nicknamed Tinopolis. So we want you to name this town on the southern Welsh coast. It's in the county of Carmarthenshire. It looks out on the Atlantic. While you mull that over, we're going to turn to James Pieslack. Hi there, Marco. He's with Travel Lodge, which has more than 500 hotels in the UK. Hope you know what we're getting towards. James, you do. What does Travel Lodge have to do with that miscellaneous list of stuff? Absolutely. You could be forgiven for thinking the link's very tenuous, but <laughs> with over 30 million people staying in our hotels in 2012, we get alerted to some very strange items in our lost property sections. We were contacted by a hotel in Northern England saying that a wand from a Harry Potter movie had been left behind in a bedroom, which really got us thinking, what else has been left across our estate? So we got in contact with all of our hotels asking, have you had any bizarre items left behind? Uh, The list, to be honest, was absolutely astonishing. We've had everything from animals through to expensive watches through to car keys. Yeah, it's a, it's a really bizarre list of items we found. What, what was like the biggest thing that somebody left behind? The biggest thing that someone left behind was an eight-foot pop-up spray tanning booth. Um, so what <laughs> this is used for, this is used for a, a set of girls before they went on a night out. They installed the pop-up tanning booth in their hotel room to, to give themselves a nice bronze glow for, for their night out. They were too busy nursing their hangovers the following day. They actually <laughs> forgot the eight-foot pop-up tanning booth that they gave us a call from the car a couple of hours later and said is it still there and to which we said it is still there how on earth did you miss it yeah they came back they <laughs> came back that same day that, that afternoon that they hired it so they'd hired it from a tanning shop so mm. they needed to bring that back <laughs> otherwise they'd have lost money on it and what about the other things did most of the items that were left behind get reclaimed i mean i i see you found a winning euro millions lottery ticket. Absolutely. I'm delighted to say that all the high value items we've managed to reunite with our customers. And and I agree, you know, if you lose a, a Rolex watch or a winning lottery ticket, what we find is that those people are much quicker to get in contact with us than, say, the four lads who left a, a set of Power Rangers costumes. It took <laughs> them a few weeks to get in contact with us, while as the holder of the winning lottery ticket, which was to the value of about £150, it wasn't a life-altering jackpot that they'd won, but still, they were very keen to reclaim that winning lottery ticket and got back in touch with us within a couple of hours, yes. Now, a travel lodge, a hotel chain, uh, didn't uh, kind of get a winning lottery ticket or a jackpot, but there was a stamp album found that was worth a quarter million pounds. It's like $400,000. What hotel was that stamp album left in and what happened to it? So this was in a hotel in a town called Llanefli, which is in Wales. And what happened was an American visitor was attending an antique fair in Wales and he had brought along a stamp album, that uh, his personal collection of stamps within it. And yet, as you say, that the stamps there were worth a quarter of a million pounds. 
after the event, he came back to the hotel and checked out, and unbelievably, he forgot the stamp album. Now, he called us from the airport in an absolute panic. Thankfully, one of our cleaners had been into the room and noticed that it was next to the bed and had brought it down to the lost and found reception. He came back very, very relieved. Well, uh, James mentioned the name of the town. It's in Wales. It's called Clenethley. It's a Welsh pronunciation, which is never easy, but uh, I guess uh, I got as close as I can get. So, James, and we're all a bit forgetful, especially when we're traveling in unfamiliar settings. Is Travel Lodge going to start after, you know, hearing all these things that people have left behind, leaving some kind of warning to people now on the door, you know? Well, you know, the pace of life is so quick these days that it's very easy to, to, to take stuff with you. I mean, I, I, for instance, forgot my laptop charger this morning. So, you know, we, we know it happens all the time, but we just urge people, you know, take your time when you're checking out of the hotel. And, and it's not just a case, I guess, when you check out of a hotel of check for your wallet, check for your keys. It's now a case of check for your magic wand, check for your Python, check for your winning lottery ticket, it seems. I guess the message is, you know, take your time when you're checking out because as we've seen, there's been some some very interesting things left behind by our customers. Yeah, I'll say. I'm still baffled by the bucket of live crabs. I hope the owners got them and uh, had a nice dinner. (laughs) Yeah, that was definitely one of the more unusual ones. I mean, imagine the cleanest surprise when she went into the bathroom to clean up after a customer had um, checked into the hotel to find, yeah, a bucket of like crabs sat in the bath. I think she got something of a shock. But yeah, it shows you what a weird and wonderful range of people we have staying in our hotels. James Pieslike handles communications for Travel Lodge in the UK, and he helps lost items find their owners. Thank you, James. Thank you very much, Marco. Can't help asking, is there anything you regret leaving in a hotel room? Apart from a bucket of live crabs, of course. Or maybe you went to extraordinary lengths to get something back. Better yet, is there anything you wish you'd left behind in that hotel room? Share your thoughts and stories at theworld.org. Musicians spend a lot of time in hotel rooms since they're on the road so much. The Welsh band Howell Griff is no exception. They've been together since 2006 playing psych rock around the globe. And earlier this week, they had the honor of being the first band to have their music broadcast in 2013. This song, Howell Griff's new single, was played at the stroke of midnight on New Year's by a radio station in Samoa. The Pacific Island nation switched its time zone not long ago to become the very first country to ring in the new year. In fact, that was the inspiration for the song by Howell Griff, appropriately called International Dateline. Band members sent an MP3 of the track to the DJs at radio station Samoa FM, who decided to play it. As singer Howell Griffiths says, you get a lot of Christmas singles, but this is probably the first New Year single. That's all for us today. The world's theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. We tweet at PRI The World. I tweet at Marco Werman from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I wish you a great weekend.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Carnegie Corporation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, MacFound.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.